Harry's our queer horror movie podcast. This episode, we're doing Hereditary. Yay! I'm the creepy man that smiles at you at a funeral, Sean. <laughs> and I'm a child singing a strange lullaby in a language you can't quite understand. What? You can't quite. <laughs> that's so. That's how it works. <laughs> Alex. <laughs> uh, we're two queer horror nerds uh, living in Hackney. Our pronouns are they, them. Uh, some content warnings for this episode. We'll be talking about grief and death and sadness, sadness. Um, improper drug use. Immolation. Um, <laughs> uh, what else? What's that mean? That's when someone's set on fire. Uh, heads coming off. Yeah. Pigeons. Uh, allergic reactions to nuts. <laughs> <laughs> Get those nuts away from my face. Um, we'll also be swearing and spoiling. That's right. That's As per ways. usual. <laughs> So, Hereditary is a 2018 uh, dark fantasy horror drama tragedy film, <laughs> uh, written and directed by Ari Aster, Ariana Aster, <laughs> uh, starring Tony Collette, uh, Gabriel Byrne, um, who's Gabriel Byrne? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that's the dad. I think that's the dad. Gabriel. Um, Gabriel, not Gabriella. Um, <laughs> um, Millie Shapiro, uh, Alex Wolf, and also Anne Dowd, who plays Jane. It's iconic. Um, Is this the first time we've done a film by a director that we've already done before? Probably, actually, yeah. What a, what a momentous occasion. Wow. How great. Cheers to us. Ching. <laughs> so um so in terms of the film, back to the film. Uh uh Tony Collette, uh, apparently at this stage of her career, had requested her from her agent that she didn't want to do any more dark films, um, and only wants to do comedies. <laughs> I don't remember seeing her in any comedies recently. Anyway, but um but apparently she loved the script so much she couldn't turn it down. Um Millie Shapiro was uh, 16 um, at the time of the film's production, uh, even though she's portraying a 13-year-old. Um, she's uh, now a total uh, TikTok quan um, <laughs> with amazing outfits and hair. Uh, and you can find her at uh, Millie Chaperoni um, uh, on TikTok. Uh, I, d- I don't think any of our listeners are young enough for TikTok. Uh, okay. <laughs> it's um, just you that's <laughs> desperately to your TikTok youth. <laughs> TikTok grandma. Um, uh, but I also just thought I was checking the username that she's uh, now putting up. She's by. So she's out. Yeah, so work, queen. Yeah, come through, mama. Um, so this was uh, Ariasta's first feature debut. What was the debut? It was the first, isn't it? I'm not a um, and it was shot. This was the first of his debuts. <laughs> this was the, the third debut, <laughs> and it was shot in 32 days. Um, it's uh, been described as uh, by Astor as a family drama that curdles into a nightmare. Um, uh, although it's been held as one of the scariest films of the 21st century, 
um, there's been some sort of critical dissonance about the film because um, it's highly acclaimed by critics and some people, but um, it, it's polarised audiences and the reviews generally aren't that favourable by what? people. Yeah, um, I it's, thought it was kind of really highly regarded, you like across the board. It's, yeah, critically, but I mean, like it's like I don't know what cinema score is, but it's got a D plus on there, whatever that means, and then it's like only sixty seven percent on Rotten Tomatoes, which is like measly. Well, but on, I think it was Rotten Tomatoes, The Babadook has 98%. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's... Yeah. I've got a million well done. (laughs) (laughs) But, I mean, it's it's crazy, because it's like, I thought it... Yeah, like you, I thought it was, like, unanimously loved and praised, but, um... I mean, I've spoken to people who think it's ridiculous and don't think it's scary at all, which surprises me. Um, but, um, I think, I think it's the ending, um, that people think is silly for some reason. Anyway, I don't know. Well, yes, I mean, what do you want from the notoriously sensible genre? (laughs) (laughs) Um, so, for Ariasta, her entry is equally inspired by family dramas. There's some films I've never heard of, uh, Ordinary People, The Ice Storm, and In the Bedroom. Um... Uh, as it is by classic horror, Rosemary's Baby, another nod. I think, like, nearly every film we reviewed has a nod to Rosemary's Baby. <laughs> yes. Perfect. Uh, don't Look Now, again, a film that always gets a nod, and I don't like you do. No. Um, and The Innocents. Which, which we love. Yes, we do love. Um, I think I, well, we can talk about this another time, but I, I feel like we need to revisit Don't Look Now. I don't want to. No. But you're just going to hate it even if you I won't, I won't look now. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, um, so, so Ari has explained that he strove for the, fa- the film's foundation for it to be its family dynamics, um, from which bleak, dark emotions arise. That can be audience alienating in a straightforward drama, but audience attracting when turned into a horror set piece. Um, the house was constructed completely on sets on a sound stage in Utah, um, in order to follow Ariasta's shot list. Um, they needed to be able to remove walls and ceilings in order to shoot the rooms to look exactly like the miniatures. So I think that plays into sort of it looking like and feeling like a dollhouse as well, mm. even though it's not explicit for most of it. Um, so, uh, Ari, uh, Ari, uh, so, says that the Graham family has no say on the events that are taking place. For Aster, the film is very Greek, um, in the sense that the way things turn out are inevitable. Um, and that's where the dollhouse comes in. And he creates these miniature figures and dollhouses. They serve as a perfect metaphor for the situation. They're in the dollhouse being manipulated by outside forces. So, that's all that's nice. Mm, except oh! <laughs> uh, uh, oh God, what's her name Annie is the mother called Annie yeah she it was her choice for Charlie to go to the party uh, that, that part wasn't in any way influenced externally well it? I mean if you're to believe that I mean obviously there's the signs that it was engineered in some way even if it was like through some kind of... Well, it's obviously supernatural means rather than... <laughs> um, so, um, apparently, according to Alex Wolf, who plays Peter, Fitty Peter, um, uh, the original cut of the film could have easily been pushed over three hours. Um, I was excited to hear that, but it, apparently it's mostly footage of more family dialogue, and I was like, oh. Unless it's like the, the, the speech, but 
I don't know. It would have been strange to have more like family dialogue and less horror. Um, well, I actually think that's what this film does exceptionally well. Is that it? And it reminds me of the kind of sort of like seventies horror films that I really love, which is that the build-up is is so like solid that it makes all of the things that follow all the more harrowing because. Mm. You like the characters, apart from maybe with the exception of the father, are all really well established. Yeah. Well, the mother and the son are anyway. Like, um, yeah. So I can see why he puts so much energy into building the backstory. Yeah. Um, I, if you think about it, I don't think the dad actually is relevant. It could have been a family without the father, like, and the the, the story would have worked just as well. Yeah, he doesn't add anything. Uh, but I, I wonder if he he's there because the only real bit that he plays apart from the burning of the book at the end is he doesn't even burn the book in the end. No, he's <laughs> the prize. Yeah, um, <laughs> is uh, him withholding information about the grave being robbed. And yeah, because I, I think that's a bit of a red herring. Cause I think we're supposed to believe that Annie is in some way doing this in her sleep or something. Yeah, yeah. And maybe he's just. The... And also, I guess like if you think about that big dinner table scene, which is perhaps like, well, definitely one of the most iconic parts from the film. It would be a very different film if there wasn't someone there to kind of break it up. Yeah. So his purpose is probably just as a relief of the tension yeah. between two others. Yeah, because she gets hysterical and he's trying to like ground her a bit, I guess. Um, otherwise, it's just everyone getting hysterical and screaming and crying all the time. Um, but yeah, uh, thank God there was a man there. Yeah, sure. Uh, um, so um, Alex uh, Wolf also had quite a sort of a rough time generally on set. Um, he was sent from heaven above. <laughs> Angel from heaven. Can I talk to you for a moment about why I find him so beautiful? Okay, please. He sounds like, can I speak to you a moment about the word of God? Well, he, like, for a white boy, he's got, uh, like, I just think he's very beautiful. (laughs) For a white (laughs) boy. (laughs) Like, he's got, like, um, He's just got a very interesting face. Like, there's not a wasted, like, line on his mm, face. I think he's quite, got quite generous features. Like, an interesting and nose. Also got, like, you know, what's that, like, uh... I was going to say Perineum, but it's definitely not... Ah! What's that? cleft palate. No, the, no, the little, like, the little sort of channel between your nose and... The Does that have a nose? Well, it's like a little snot, snot canal. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, like that's really pronounced, oh. and like he's got like his mole, and he's just like yeah, and he's like really dark eyes, and, and it's like busy he's got hair. Eye, like, busy hair. Oh, he's just he's an absolute angel from heaven. Yeah. Um, to well, begin with. Um. Anyway, so yeah, he had a tough time on set. Generally, saying that the whole thing was quite traumatic. Um, speaking specifically to uh, the bit where he slams his head on the desk. Um, uh, he actually offered uh, Ariasta to that he'd break his nose for real for the scene. Um, and he was... was <laughs> um, and he asked... my guts for real. <laughs> <laughs> the script. Um, and Asta said no, obviously. But then um, told him that he's using like a soft cushioned foam desk. 
But he actually realised when he arrived on set that it was kind of, had a very thin layer of foam and it was actually quite hard underneath. So it was kind of halfway between and there was only two of them. So he had to get the scene right, like, sort of like only straight Only two of the desks. Only two of the prop desks, yeah. So he had to get the scene, like, right, like straight away. Um, uh, so yeah, in that scene, he ended up obviously including damaging his nose, um, uh, blood gushing from his knee from hitting the desk. Uh, from filming, he'd lost his voice. Uh, he was unable to move his arm. Uh, his ankles swole up for some reason. Swole? It got well swole. <laughs> um, uh, and, uh, and apparently, like, the pain and the kind of hobbling around that he's doing at the end of the film is kind of real, basically. It's like the actual pain he was in. Um, so yeah, what, what a poor little baby. Yeah. Apparently, according actually to early test screenings, the ending was slightly more gr- on the graphic side, which I'm surprised about. Um, apparently after the, the crowning is complete, uh, with Peter, I've <laughs> crowned! <laughs> um, he then rips his own eyes out, uh, to end the transformation, and I think, it makes sense if you if you look at the pictures and the and the drawings that all the eyes are scratched out, but um, obviously that doesn't happen. Nothing happens in the film like that. I wonder why they. Re- I don't think they needed to do that. No, really, there was enough going on. Yeah. <laughs> so Ari wanted any effect that could be done practically if you done that way instead of post production. So to make the chalkboard right on itself, the special effects team put a magnet in the chalk and put the magnet on the other side of the chalkboard to make the chalk move. It was apparently very difficult to get the small magnet inside the chalk to make it right smoothly. And also, it would need to, at some points, apply pressure, and at other points, when it moves around, yeah. It's so complicated on a fist on, exactly. (laughs) Well, I I know you want to do it that way, but it's just annoying, so no. (laughs) Um, uh, Apparently, also, the team uh, did a lot of uh, animatronics. They they built a puppet of um, Charlie for the decapitation scene, Um, uh, apparently, uh, it was like the biggest challenge uh, in the whole thing. Originally, the car that Charlie rode in was meant to be mounted on a track that was led uh, that it would lead to in the animatronic puppet in the tel- into the telephone pole. But changes meant the effect that it had to be performed by a fully operational vehicle driving at sixty miles an hour. <laughs> Um, for the effect, which they call a gag, I've not heard that before, um, a collapsible inner skull was built. Um, What's the, an inner skull? I don't know. I guess, yeah, just a skull, I guess. <laughs> um, <laughs> this skull was meant to, damage, uh, meant to mirror the damage created on another Charlie head that was built to represent the aftermath of the accident. Um, tests were carried out on the makeup shop using a baseball bat to simulate the telephone pole's impact. Um, Imagine being a 16 year old and, <laughs> and, and watching someone beating <laughs> your head! Your head with a baseball bat. Um, so, apparently, like, it all went perfectly in terms of what they were planning, but it ended up being like way too gruesome to actually use. Oh, wow. So, they only used like tiny clippets of it. Uh, clippets, little clippets. Um, so actually, uh, as, uh, as speaking of the telephone post, um, my, my telephone. it's uh, one of the places you see uh, the symbol of uh, Paimon uh, is carved into it, and it's uh, scattered throughout the film. Is it a real symbol? Yes. Um, so I think it's you first see it on the mum's necklace at the funeral, and it's just like everywhere, like throughout the film. And it's actually the real seal of the demon Paimon from Goetic text. Um, 
although they're usually contained within a circle, as you usually summon them to trap them and uh, do your bidding. But in the film, obviously, it's without a circle, I guess, to sort of give them freedom and possess the body. Um, hilariously, as a teenager, I, I did my own summoning with a goetic seal, but not a pain one of Belial. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> Why settle for paper when you can have the life? Exactly. Um, Did it work? uh, No, not really. I wanted it to make me more confident and more, like, strong and manly, but uh, that's not what my aims are really anymore. (laughs) Um, So um, there was, uh, obviously, in the film and the soundtrack, um, there's sort of a great deal of loud sound effects and music, and uh, that's meant to be sort of uh, apparently sort of fitting to Paimon, who is what a just... strange thing to say. What? And in the soundtrack, there are sound effects and music. They're quite loud. That's what I said, <laughs> didn't they? Um, in the soundtrack, there are sounds. Um, <laughs> but um, apparently, like his arrival is uh, described as being accompanied with loud music and cymbals crashing. Um, and I was thinking about the, there's like a really cool sound that like in the tree has the amber, and I think it's throughout where it's like, it's like a horn, it's like a horn almost. Anyway, um, like with Midsummer, actually, the, the film includes runes, um, in the, in the film. So in the opening shot, uh, a life rune, which is like an upside down peace sign can be seen constructed into the side of the tree house. Um, the life rune symbolizes birth and beginnings. Uh, the appearance of the life rune signifies the beginning of the story and the foreshadowing the tree house of the, uh, the location of Paimon's rebirth. Towards the end, a death rune, which is the right side up peace sign, can be seen constructed into the corner of the attic wall. Um, the death rune symbolizes death and endings, obviously. Um, and the appearance of the death rune uh, signifies the end of the story. Mm. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's, uh, it says beginning and beginning, <laughs> and then end at the end. The end. Yeah. <laughs> but it's just funny. He obviously must love runes. So I wonder if that'll be a, a running theme in his other films. Um, uh, <laughs> this bit makes me laugh. But, I mean, it kind of tracks. But um, it says that Charlie is heavily associated with birds. Um, her facial features appear somewhat bird-like, as what this person has said, not me. I suppose it's true. Um, she has a habit of making weird clucking noises. Um, some of the creepy sculptures she makes have bird parts in them. And obviously she cuts the bird's head off uh, with the scissors. And the finale in the treehouse, there's also a bird in a cage hung up in the treehouse next to the severed head on the mannequin. Um, Does someone say what the significance of this is? Uh, birds. Oh, okay. Yeah, birds. yeah, yeah. Sure. Um, apparently, um, A24, our favourite production company, promoted the film by, uh, giving examples of Charlie's Creepers Little Dolls as gifts to people who attended the screening. Um, and actually, in, for some people, that involved leaving the gifts outside their front door. <laughs> I imagine. I also feel like it's odd to pick that up as, like, a symbol from the film, because I don't think they're really in it that much. Yeah, they're not not in it tons. Um, Well, actually, you see them in the scene where uh, Joan, like, um, uh, Annie goes to try and visit Joan, and she's not there, and her her things, like, the little toys are all over the table. Mm. Anyway, um, so, um, uh, apparently in Peter's first scene at school, the words, Escaping Fate are on the chalkboard with the teacher discussing it, and this is a reference apparently to Halloween, the movie, um, where the main character discusses the same thing in class. 
Um, appropriately, this was released the same day as the trailer for Halloween. How does that work? What? It was released? The, it, the movie was released the same day as the trailer for Halloween. In, but in 2018, well, I guess. Oh, seems um, worth mentioning. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, someone's made the point that there's clear references to mental illness throughout the film. Um, and the Grahams even have a history of mental illness. So the Grahams is a family, because obviously the brother and the mum and Annie. Um, and... Uh, and it's sort of like, uh, they posited that maybe it's just like, uh, an allegory for mental illness. And, uh, the ending is just basically all of, sort of, instead of a manifestation of pain, it's actually just a manifestation of a breakdown, essentially. Mm, that's um, a lazy reading. You're a lazy reading. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm shooting down all my facts. <laughs> Shit, boring. Come next on, one. <laughs> <laughs> this one's a fun one. Uh, that's it, boring. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, um, uh, one of the trailers for Run Tree was accidentally shown at the beginning of a PG rated family film, Peter Rabbit, um, in Australia, and it caused a mild panic in the cinema with parents fleeing with their children. <laughs> I. You've told this story about a different film before. Oh, Did you well... tell this for Midsummer? No. I've uh, heard you tell me that before. Okay, well, maybe I'll I was talking like about this. It's just like an urban legend that kind of follows lots of big horror films. Okay, another shooting down of my facts. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, can't, wait for, can't wait for my final uh, one. See, see how you like this one for size. <laughs> I don't mean to be... <laughs> So contrary. <laughs> Boring. I'm sure I heard that one before. <laughs> Come on, what's next? <laughs> um, so uh, there's a sort of fun trans reading of the film, which hopefully you'll enjoy. Only time I, will tell. I also have a trans reading of okay. the film. Okay. So uh, apparently it was first or noticed or pointed out by a YouTuber, a trans YouTuber called Nix Fears. Um, and she said that she noticed that it kind of followed, or she noticed the trans storyline and sort of pointed out in a story on YouTube. Um, and so saying that the entire film is actually more, is about Charlie becoming a trans boy. Um, and allegory to how Charlie starts to transition, becoming Peter. Her family rejects it, and she finally ends up finding happiness with others, so the cult. Uh, flushing it out a little bit, um, Charlie's accidental death by Peter's hands symbolize, symbolizes him killing his past self, um, which he sees as terrifying, apparently. Um, uh, leaving her body to be discovered by his mother out of shock can also be seen as being outed. Um, and he makes no moves to remove Charlie cor- Charlie's corpse out of pure horror. Um, his mother blaming him for the death of her daughter um, is a phrase that many unaccepting parents have used against their transitioning children. Um, on top of that, Charlie having an androgynous name and her grandmother flat out telling her... Alex having an androgynous name. That's true, actually. And um, who's Alex? Oh, that's the actor's name. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
Yes, the androgynous snake. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, there's other androgynous snakes. <laughs> um, and the grandmother flat out telling her that she should have been born a boy uh, plays into this. Um, of course, it's uh, because Paymon needs a male host and Charlie was the only, only relative that could fill that role due to Annie keeping Peter away from his grandmother. But the implication of not being a, the way everyone wanted you to be is deeply reminiscent of a trans person's struggle with their identity. I thought that was quite fun. Did you uh, hate that one as well? No, it, it's not quite the same as mine, but um, but I'll accept this fact. <laughs> I'm wondering, is that the same uh, person who also did a trans reading of Midsummer? Uh, no, I don't think it is. Um, because the thing that I thought about so I, I, when I was looking up for my spoopy bit, looking up an idea for a story, I read a bit about Paymon. Mm. And Paymon is always depicted as having a woman's face yes. in a man's body. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's um, a good point. And, yeah, and the fact that the, the whole Charlie being beheaded, that's the, like, woman's face yeah. and his body sort of thing. Um, yes. Yeah, I think there's, there's lots to be said for trans stuff. Yeah, I agree. Um, it's funny actually though because Ariaster has been asked about like this and just generally other like allegories and hidden meanings, and he's actually just said that in his films the films just mean what they mean and there's no hidden meanings. <laughs> so, but obviously anyone can read anything into any art that they want. So, fuck you, Ari. <laughs> So the film opens on an obit for Ellen, um, who we don't know who that is yet, but it's the grandma, um, an info about... Um, an info? An info <laughs> and info. A notorious ninfo. <laughs> no, an info about her service. Um, we then cut to... Uh, the <laughs> 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 it opens with an obituary uh, for Grandma. She's an info. Um. So then uh, we cut to the treehouse through um, uh, a window, um, and it's panning around um, to a studio uh, filled with miniatures. Um, uh, slowly and zooming into the house, which then becomes a bedroom, uh, which becomes real. Um, and it's Peter's room. Um, and, uh, the dad, uh, what's his name? Steve. Yeah, Steve. Steve. Uh, Steve. Uh, <laughs> That's a nice androgynous name. <laughs> yeah. Uh, comes in and, uh, puts a, puts a suit on his bed and says, get up and asks where Charlie is. And she's in the treehouse, as per. Uh, Dad goes and fetches her and says, It's cold, you shouldn't be sleeping here. And she goes, It's fine. Um, anyway, so then they go, it's cuts to the funeral. And uh, and he's giving a kind of very weird speech where she's just like, oh, so, so many strange new faces here today. <laughs> and then talks about her mum being like, A secretive woman with uh, private rituals and ways. And uh, and that she didn't really know much about her essentially. And that uh, she would probably hate everyone. that she, uh, that she was talking about her. Yeah. Um, 
So, so then, it, um, the, the, her beautiful speech is over. Um, we see people queuing up to visit gran- Granny in the coffin, Nympha Granny, um, and uh, and uh, Charlie, uh, the little child, uh, goes up to have a look at Granny. And there's this sort of weird, creepy man with sort of cropped hair in the corner. He uh, looks very. Um, he, you know, who he reminds me of. Who? Can you remember Raoul Moat? No. He was that Northeastner who went on like a shooting spree. Oh. And then Paul Gascoigne like tried to like calm him down by bringing him a can of beers in his dressing gown or something. Oh my god. Anyway, he looked like sort of like big, beefy, like kind of Scandinavian. Yeah, I thought he looked a bit like that guy on The Simpsons who's meant to be um, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Oh yeah, he goes out with Mrs. Um, Van yeah. yeah. Anyway, so he's well, at, he's at the end of the coffin, sort of creepily smiling at Charlie, and she's like, "Where?" Um, and uh, yeah, um, we then with I don't know why this is in this order, but apparently um, we're back in the the funeral hall, and uh, maybe they're just waiting for if things went. And um, Charlie's drawing in her sketchbook. It looks like a picture of the mum, like crying, um, and is clucking in her, her usual fashion. Um, so at home, uh, we cut to Annie, and she's working on some miniatures, and it's her mother in the hospice. Um, Steve walks in, Steve, um, <laughs> and he's like. What's the deadline for the show? Six months. Um, she's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the show becomes just this kind of like annoying, overhanging kind of side plot that just is so annoying. <laughs> Never materialized. Yeah. Um, so, um, mum, uh, that evening goes to visit Charlie, um, in a room and you get to see a little glimpse of Charlie's little, uh, her own art studio with her little weird trinkets. Um, made out of little bits of metal and like toys. Um, and, uh, she, uh, sits on her bed and, um, she goes like, she goes, Oh, you know that, um, you were Granny's favorite. And, uh, Charlie's like, she wants me to be a boy. And then, uh, Annie does this whole speech about, uh, saying that she used to be a tomboy and she never wanted to wear dresses and all that. And um, and then Charlie's like... It's so funny, because I think, like, if... Like, as a trans person watching that, if you kind of go out of your way to find trans narratives in films, from the like, from that very first... Yeah. Moment, you just be like, right, I'm reading this as trans now. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, she... Um, Charlie asks Sally, um, who's going to take care of me when you die... Uh, no, who's going to take care of me now, she says. And, uh, she's like, me, of course. And then Charlie goes, what about when you die? And, uh, she's like, well, Peter and your dad. Um, but yeah, and then she kind of like, she sort of says like, it was quite a sad day. It would be okay if you wanted to cry, you know, it might be a release. And, um, it's sort of, it's sort of at this point, and I think it maybe is only this point where it's really sort of alluded to that she, isn't emotionally functional in the way that she should and in inverse commas be. I, I don't I don't think it's anywhere else in the film actually. Yeah, I also don't think that Charlie is actually a very well developed character. No. And maybe she doesn't need to be because she doesn't make it very far into the film, but <laughs> No. <laughs> 
um, it's funny actually, just a bit of a backstory. Um, in the in the lead up to the film, um, Charlie uh, in character and Peter in character went out together to try and do some kind of like uh, in in character real life stuff, and apparently it just consisted of Charlie just sitting silently and Peter talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, good, <laughs> great job. Um, so uh, mum uh, then goes back to her studio and it's dark now and she opens uh, a box um, and finds like um, an old photo album she flicks through and then she finds a sort of yellow book called Notes on Spiritualism Um, she opens it up and she finds this note handwritten note from her mum it's quite long, but the gist of it is that she says something like, "I'll sack." Like, four lines. But, uh, <laughs> go on, then you, you say it. <laughs> it wasn't my job. Well, no, go on. <laughs> it's so short. Maybe you'll remember. Um, so the gist of it is. The gist of it is, which is the most important thing, I rather than reciting it line for line, as some might suggest I, was I just should. Correcting you saying that it was it's, a lot a lengthy tome it's of a letter. Longer than is necessary to say in this podcast. <laughs> Thank you, Sean, for your contributions. Um, so the gist of it is um, is that she says, I know you've been through a tough time and um, it's been kind of fairly horrible, uh, but our sacrifices uh, will pale next to the rewards. Um, sort of alluding to the fact that obviously that she's sort of like hoping that her kind of investment in Paymon is going to pay off. Mon. <laughs> Um, she looks into the sort of darkness in the corner of the room and as she's leaving and she sees sort of this like a ghostly kind of like apparition of her mum faintly in the corner Um, and she turns the light on and it just instantly disappears I like that there's no um, yeah it's not like done jumpily it's she just sees her and there's no like change in the music or anything until afterwards Um, yeah I think there's only one big jump in it that I got. No, oh, yeah. The rest of it's quite <laughs> like a huge screen. But, terrified um, me. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's like, um, it's very understated. Yeah, me, like. During some of the graphic moments. Yeah. Because, like, yeah, the supernatural moments are quite kind of understated to begin with, and then they're kind of like. It's more like the real stuff that's kind of visceral, yeah. Mm. Um, yeah, so anyway, she looks back into the studio and she sees uh, a miniature that she's made of, um, like, it looks like the mum, like the grandma uh, leaning over the bed with her wab out while um, Annie's in bed with the baby. Um, and it looks like she's trying to, like, feed the baby with her own boob, um, which, uh, with her own granny nympho boob. Um <laughs> So, uh, next day in class, uh, Charlie is playing with a toy, um, and uh, the teacher's like, have you finished the test? She's like, no. She's like, better do the test, then we can play with toys later. Um, and suddenly a bird flies into the window and makes a smashing noise, and a smashing oh, noise. <laughs> and the class are all like, woo, 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 woo. Um, at break, uh, Charlie goes out and finds the little pidgey dead in the bush and uh, she <laughs> pulls no, up because she'd been eyeing up a pair of scissors yeah and she, um, she she takes out those said scissors and uh, chops off its head and pops the head in her pocket um, when she turns around there's like a weird woman watching her from across the road just like smiling and like waving um, 
Back at home, Dad gets a call from the cemetery or graveyard. I don't know. Is there a difference between a cemetery and a graveyard? No, not a terrible cemetery. It's a cemetery graveyard. Um, I think it... I, 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 I'm going to say something that's purely made up, but I think it might be... Is a graveyard attached to a church? I don't think that's worth saying. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, it could be, yes. Uh, interesting, thank you for your contribution. Well, I mean, maybe don't ask the question. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be a bit episode. <laughs> like hereditary. Oh. Um, and, um, and so, yeah, he's getting a call from the cemetery and he's like, what does it mean, desecration? He says, it's only been a week. <laughs> like, a week's too soon for a desecration. Um... Annie then pops up and is like, says that she's going to a film. Uh, and uh, uh, as we both discussed, this is very odd. But she's just like, I'm going to a film. You don't need to know what film. And you're not invited. Yeah, you don't uh, need to know what film. And you can't come. Yeah, bye. <laughs> um, she actually ends up driving to uh, a group called uh, Losing a Loved One Group. Um and um, she uh, is invited to speak. And at first she's like, oh, I don't know, I'm not sure. And then there's like a really awkward silence. And then she just goes off. <laughs> and um, it's funny because a lot of like what she says is kind of like, it's, it's sort of a sort of really weird... She just obviously has a lot of guilt that she kind of passes off as being like annoyed about. And so she's like, talks about her older brother and how he had, uh, he commits suicide, he has schizophrenia. And, uh, the, he said that he blames the, he blames the mum for trying to put people inside of him, which obviously we can infer is about Paymon. Um, and, um, pot <laughs> Um, and, uh, she says that she didn't let, um, the mum near child, like, near her son, Peter, growing up. Um, it's not really clear why. Like, she just sort of implies that they she's not very nice. I think so. Yeah. Um, and, um. Well, maybe it's because of the way she behaved around boys. Yeah, boys. And then so boys. Um, and um, and then she says, like, oh, I didn't let her near my son, even though she's desperate, which is why I ended up letting her at Charlie, uh, which is kind of weird. Um, and, um, and she says, I just sometimes feel like it's all ruined and I'm blamed. And, she's, and the guy's like, well, who blames you? And she goes, I don't know, I just feel blamed. <laughs> it's, like, it's, it's interesting. Like, she's such a great character. Um, and this time round, watching it, I felt less sympathy with her than I have in previous viewings of it. And it's this kind of, like, persecution uh, yeah. kind of complex that she's got. Yeah. Um, when she also doesn't realise that she's having a really negative impact on her son. Yeah. Um, yeah, she seems to, like, even if she's been in the wrong, she then blames everyone else, basically. Yeah. Like, so, like, yeah. And um, she is mean to the son. Like, yeah, horrible. very uncomfortable. Um, so, um, so back at the house, and, uh, we're talking about the son, Peter gets a text inviting him to a party, and it says something about a huge rager, and it says, bring your dick. <laughs> um, I'd probably text him. <laughs> um, so, um, so Charlie's in her room working on her little craft, um, and is visited by the weird light reflections. And it's the first time we see them. They're kind of like dancing around the room. These kind of like weird scattered light sort of like things. 
Um, and um, she ends up following the light outside um, and walking towards into the field outside the back of the house. And uh, meanwhile, uh, Peter goes to uh, Annie and is like, could I borrow the car to go to a school barbecue thing? And she's just like immediately combative and mean. She's like, uh, oh, you're, so you're not eating with us? And it's like, no, I will eat. It's like, okay, well, so you are eating. And it's like, and, and have you invited your sister? And it's just like making everything really annoying and difficult. It's just like, can we just have a conversation? Yeah, she like goes from like naught to a hundred with him in such a snappy way. Yeah, and he's like, does she want to go? And um, and like, and she's like, it'll be good for us to like be out and around people and stuff. Um, so we cut Wait, back so to. Do you know how old he's supposed to be in this? So I know he Shh. he is nineteen or twenty in real life, but he's in he's not old enough to be drinking yet. Yeah, but that's, but that's crazy because that's like 21 in America, isn't it? Um, so he's like 17 or something? Yeah, it could be 17 to even... Well, he's still in college, so yeah, like 17, 18 must be the oldest he is. Like, imagine suggesting that your 17-year-old son, let alone your 18-year-old son, takes <laughs> his 13-year-old very yeah. vulnerable sister yeah. to, to what you clearly know as a barbecue. Uh, a barbecue. A ranger. With dicks. Because, with dicks. Because she... She keeps having go with him about drinking, even though he said, like, I'm not going to drink. Yeah, it's just like, ugh. anyway, I think it really is her fault. Anyway, um, so we cut back to uh, J- Charlie in the field walking through, and she sees through the trees um, a woman wearing white, um, like a white dress with white hair. Like and uh, it looks like grandma. Um, and she's in a sort of circle of fire, or there's like fire around her. Um, at that very moment, uh, Annie pops up. Oh, wait, up. is that her body then? From the. Oh, maybe. Ah, that's just occurred to me because I thought it was just like a vision. It could be her body. Because we just see her like crouched over. Yeah, you don't see her from yeah, the back. Oh, that's interesting. Um,. Yeah, so anyway, at that very moment, mum finds her and, like, just, like, grabs her. And she's like the bitch that she is. And drags her in and says, You can't be walking around with those shoes like some kind of idiot. Um, and uh, she's, like, informs her when she's back in the house that she's going to a party with her brother. Um, and she's like, Who's going? Who will I know? And she's like... Uh, you'll make friends, you have to go. It's just so really you'll make horrible. 18 year old friends. <laughs> yes! Um, so on, this, on the drive there, we see, um, obviously, he, she's in the back seat and he's in the front, and we see them drive past the telephone pole, pay him on symbol. Uh, um, uh, they get there, and uh, <laughs> uh, Peter bumps into his uh, crush, um, and uh, they're doing some funny flirting. And then I he's, think he's like, too good for her. Yeah, he's too good for everyone. Um, and, um, and he pulls out some weed and says, Do you smoke weed? Cause I got some really good stuff or something. <laughs> and then she's like, There's a bong upstairs. <laughs> um, and, um, he tells Charlie to wait downstairs and, uh, she's like, What will I do? And it's like, Why don't you get some of that cake over there? Eat a fucking cake for like, uh, um, uh, we also see actually when, uh, we, we walk in that someone's chopping a load of nuts up. Mm. Nuts. Um, what sort of 17 year old party has a big. Uh, yeah, homemade nutty cake. chocolate cake. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Well, I did see this thing on Twitter saying that, like, 
an American 18-year-old is so different from, like, a British teenager, like, 18-year-old. Because, like, by that age, they're just like, I'm going to church, <laughs> and I'm volunteering with my college. It must <laughs> depend on what area like, <laughs> It's like, um, I'm in rehab. I've had my second child. <laughs> um, so, yeah, um... So it's alluded to actually earlier at the funeral that she has a nut allergy, but it's like so brief you could miss it. Yeah, um, she's eating a chocolate bar on the dad stove. Yeah, it's like, um, dad's got nuts in it, has it? Yeah, that's bit late for all that, Steve. <laughs> um, so yeah, so she eats the cake, very sloppy way, goes all over her face while Charlie's upstairs doing some bong stuff, and um, she starts wheezing, and uh, she ends up going upstairs to finding him. To finding him. And, uh, and it's just like, Peter, I can't breathe. My throat is so swollen. Um, and, uh, he ends up like rushing her out the door. Um, you know what I think makes this all especially sad mm. is that he actually seems like a really lovely brother to her. Like, mm. yeah, he kind of leaves her downstairs unattended, but also he's a 17 year old. But then yeah. as soon as he knows she's in trouble, he like scoops her up and runs her out and goes to take her to the hospital. Yeah. Um, so this leads to the, probably the most horrendous uh, actual scene. I don't know. I find this whole bit awful. Like her choking for breath in the back of the seat and flailing around as he's driving and just like saying like, we'll get to the hospital soon. Don't worry. Um, it's also like, why doesn't he have an EpiPen if she's that allergic? Anyway, whatever. Like you, you think you'd go... Um, but yeah, anyway, so, um, so yeah, they're like driving and she's like flailing around trying to gasping for breath and, um, and then like, uh, to try and help with the breathing, um, she puts the window down and pops her head out. Um, and, uh, at that very moment, um, there's some kind of animal, I think, in the road. Yeah, it looks like a deer or something. Yeah. And, uh, he swerves to, uh, avoid it and, uh, uh, Bob's your uncle, uh, uh, Charlie's head gets smooshed into the lamppost. Um, and it's like, bam. So two things about this. Uh, one is, uh, perhaps the cleverest thing about the way this film was marketed was that it made out like Charlie was the main character. Yeah. She featured in it most heavily. And it made out like she was the one that the story followed. So that this was a genuine surprise in the cinema because we're only like 15, 20 yeah, yeah, minutes yeah. or something by this point. Maybe not even that. <clears throat> yeah, um, it's very early on. But second thing is, and maybe I'll share the first time we watched this film. <laughs> uh, we went to see it one evening after work and I I fell asleep. As is your way. <laughs> As is my way. In my defence, the cinema is my ideal sleeping <laughs> arrangement. <laughs> Nice air conditioning, dark, comfy seat, surrounded by strangers. So <laughs> stay feet. Um, um, so I, I did actually fall asleep, not because I was bored, but because I was exhausted. And then I was kind of, I was desperately trying to fight it and like keep myself awake. And then the decapitation scene happened, and all of a sudden I was like bolt up, wide awake. <laughs> and, I, and, and then I, I watched the rest of the film. Yes, um, it, was a, it was a wake up call, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, and then just like this, this whole bit that follows is so incredible and so disturbing. It's just like he's just sitting; he can't even bring himself to look. He knows what's happened essentially. Um, and he's just silently sat in the car with it, just like not moving with the engine running. And, um, 
And it just feels like for eternity, basically. And it's just clear that he just is in complete sort of shock. And he's just like, ends up starting the car up again and just driving, um, getting home. And then he's just like in a sort of zombie state, kind of like, sort of almost like floats to his bed, essentially, and gets in. And um, you see like, it so it feels like you follow his face until the morning, but actually it just cuts to morning and he's still awake, essentially. Real time. <laughs> that would be horrible. I um so um and you can basically he can hear downstairs um Annie talking about how she's gonna she needs to go and I need to go and get some balsa wood. Um and uh so then she's like she's like la 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 poodle 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 um here opening the door closing the door and there's even like when she gets to the car like a slight delay like in terms of like her realizing or like understanding like what's happened and it's quite kind of it's all kind of explains a bit later doesn't she yeah um and um and then just like it's basically a solid 10 minutes of her wailing over various scenes um so if I had to compile a list, which I probably will do, sort of thing I do with my time, of like the top ten most beautiful moments in horror films, the way that her the aftermath of her death would be up there. The fact that when he sat in the car and it never moves away from his face, and I think it's I think it's realistic. Yeah, I think I can imagine that being the sort of immediate trauma you would go through when yeah. you just go into complete shock. And the thing is, though. I, I said this when we were watching it, like, this film, a lot of the, like, the critics said that this was, like, uh, Tony Collette's finest moment, you know, this is her film, which, absolutely, like, she's incredible, mm. but he is phenomenal in this film, his acting yeah. is so good, yeah. and the fact that his face, it barely changes, like, he barely yeah. reacts to it, but his eyes are kind of, like, welling up. And there's just like a little quiver. It's so well done. Yeah, like yeah. I think it's as close to perfection as you can get in a horror film in yeah. terms of like pure acting. Like he sells that whole thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and the fact that you, it, 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 like you see the decapitation, but very, very briefly. Yeah. Um, and the rest of what you're seeing is just like him. And at that point, it becomes his story. Um, yeah. It's, oh, it's just so beautiful. It's so beautiful. Yeah. And did, did, I read somewhere that, Ari Aster based this off a true story of two, I think it was like two uh, young boys who were out, um, yeah. two young men who were out driving. And <laughs> one, children who were driving their toy car. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and one of them was decapitated in that way. Uh, and the other one did just drive straight home because he didn't know what to do. Uh, um, and then, but someone found the, saw the car immediately. So it was oh like, next God. but yeah, it's, um, I, I just think there's, Oh, it's so beautiful. Like, I know it's weird to kind of... Yeah, yeah. How beautiful it is, but I really love... Like, I love that horror, like, almost exclusively has the capacity to make something really dark, really beautiful. Yeah, I think that kind of uh, sort of harks back to his intention, because if it was just a straight drama film, this would be an awful moment that would just... Like, it's like the horror adds a sort of spicy fun to it, but it sort of matches it, like the vibe. It's strange. It's like, you can't really, yeah, you couldn't do it. Like, you couldn't turn it into a comedy, for example. Yeah, and also, like, if, if, the, if, like, a horrible scene of one of them dying was later in the story, I don't know, it's like, 
the what follows for the rest of the film is a response to this one incident. And it doesn't get more horrific than this scene. Yeah, yeah. Because it's so out of the blue. What yeah. follows wouldn't happen if it wasn't for that, but it and it but it but it then just becomes more horror. Yeah, but yeah. This is and and I I do credit most of that, not most of that, but a lot of that to the fact to the way the film was marketed. Like for if watching it with fresh eyes, there was no way you were expecting that to happen. No, no, yeah, there was no way of guessing that would happen, which is why it was so like what um, you like felt like you were there with him, essentially experiencing it because it was just so like shocking. Um, but yeah, oh, so good. So, so yeah, so then it's also like I said, like her wailing, but um, but the the scenes change. Um, so you see her wailing on the floor, saying that she wants to die. Like pounds out, and Peter's sort of stood in the dark in the corridor, listening. Um, there's a funeral, obviously. There's still the same crying continuously all the way through, um, and uh, it ends up uh, going. Uh, basically, it cuts to um, a night scene where. What? You know what that has just triggered in me. <clears throat> What's the trigger? Uh, it's triggered me timbers. Um, <laughs> can you remember in Midsummer when the main character finds out that all of her family are dead and she starts she starts screaming? Oh uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Her like sobbing carries on over. That's a number true. Of that's scenes, true. It's it? another yeah. signature move. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I didn't think of that. Anyway, yes. Yeah, so. Um, so, uh, eventually the screaming stops and the film continues. <laughs> um, and it cuts the scene where, like, uh, Peter's in bed looking out the window and in the treehouse there's, like, red light coming out of it. It's kind of ominous. But it cuts to it and, uh, Annie's in there sleeping with heat lamps very close to her head yeah, and feet. Uh, <laughs> like, yeah, she's, like, she's a rotisserie. Um, and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> or one of those kebabs. Yeah. <laughs> Annie Shish. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> um, anyway, so um, so Dad's inside and he's in Charlie's room. He's just like flipping through her her drawings. Um, we cut then to uh, next day and Peter's in class, um, looking I, absolutely I, I just terrible. To keep yes. Like another brilliant thing about this is. But the timeline is a little bit vague. Um, we don't really know how much time has passed between the death and that. And because of that, we don't see any interaction between the mother and son. That's until true. It's time to ex- for them to like explode at each other, really. Yeah. Um, oh, so beautifully done. <laughs> love it. I love a good death. <laughs> beautiful. And it's a bleak aftermath. <laughs> So yeah, so uh, we've got uh, Peter in his classroom. Yeah, he looks terrible, as you'd expect. Um, and weirdly, I didn't notice this until this time, but he, he's looking towards the front of the class and he actually sees a wing mirror in his view from the car, looking back into the back seat. It's very brief. Oh, I did see that, yeah. Yeah, I, I, that's the first time I noticed it. Yeah, I think um, it was me as well. And um, yeah, so... Yeah, because that's the closest you come to seeing a more detailed version mm. of her, decap- like her body with no head yeah um then it cuts to the him under the bleachers with his doobie friends um and they're all smoking doobies and laughing and he's quite kind of silent um and uh he's while they're all having their lols 
he suddenly starts looking a bit like he can't catch his breath. And uh, I think he has a panic attack, but he thinks he's basically having some kind of allergic reaction, essentially. And he's sort of I saying his throat's had, closing up. I think up. it was a nutty doobie. A nutty doobie. <laughs> uh, so, but he kind of recreates what happens to Charlie. Essentially, he says, oh, my throat's closing up, I'm having some kind of reaction. So it's obviously some kind of like guilt panic attack, uh, That reminds me of the line that she says when she comes into the bedroom. She says, my throat feels big. Yeah. Mm. Um... So we, uh, we, I mean, there's no resolution to that scene. It just then cuts to, um, Annie, uh, driving again to, uh, the group. Uh, but this time she's just sort of hanging around in the car park. Um, and uh, she's watching all the people going in and, uh, she just stands up sort of driving or like turning around, driving off. Um, <laughs> she's hilariously flagged down by this, like, camp older lady like flailing her arms at her um and uh and she like taps on the window she's like oh Annie I'm sorry I, I met you in group I was in group with you a few uh weeks ago um how are you after your mother's death I don't, I don't know if she specifies how long ago it was actually um and uh she says well actually my daughter's died as well <laughs> um no, not uh, another uh, one <laughs> <laughs> Um, so the woman who plays Joan and Dowd yeah. is brilliant in this role. Yeah. And also it's not a hugely dissimilar role to her in The Leftovers. Um, yeah. Which was such a brilliant series. Yeah. Really underrated. She's um, in she's a main character in Handmaid's Tale as well, but you haven't seen those yeah. and she's like really sinister in that as well. Um but yeah, she's she's an amazing actress. Um She plays like she plays the kind of like dis, like kind of Almost sickly sweet, but kind sort of, of evil. Um, so yeah, she she ends up telling Annie that she lost her both her son and her grandson. Um, they both drowned, um, and she she sort of like, insists that she takes her number and says that people always need someone to talk to. Uh, feel free to reach out to me anytime. Um, then uh, we cut to Peter, and he's in his room. Um, and uh, he thinks he hears Charlie's one of her clucks. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's it. Actually, then uh, the next day we're in. Uh, Mum is in her studio, and uh, she ends up spilling a load of blue paint, and uh, ends up spilling over this uh, this little note that um, she yeah, finds on the desk, and it's actually Jane's phone number, and she decides to give her a call. Um, when she arrives at Jones, she notices that she has the same kind of embroidered welcome mat that her mother does, and she says that to Jones. She's like, oh, that's interesting, and moves on very quickly. It's an excessive uh, welcome mat. It's more like a hassock. It's like a little cushion, isn't it? Yeah, it's strange. Um, they actually auctioned them off as part of a big like fundraiser. Like, um, like, and like, it wasn't really that expensive. I'm really sad that I couldn't have got one. Oh, maybe I'll try and make you one of your next Yeah, day. thank you. <laughs> um, and uh, anyway. I also tried to make you a re- uh, recreation of Charlie's head. <laughs> Maybe As a cake, a cake yes. Mm, nice. Cut into it, all the blood kind of oh, ants come no. out. Um, so yeah, so um, she uh, she ends up opening up about finding uh, Charlie's body in the car, and like goes into gruesome detail, saying there was sort of black blood everywhere, it looked like tar, um, and she couldn't get her head around what was happening. Um, <laughs> and. Um, <laughs> Um, and, uh, yeah, so, um, she then asks how, like, Peter is, um, uh, like, 
and um, she ends up going off on this random story about how like she slept walked when she like a few years ago and how she woke up in his room and um, and she was covered in uh, light of no, no paint thinner and he was and she woke herself up lighting a match and um, and <laughs> and uh, she's like. And she looked, uh, he looked horrified, and obviously it was like it was, she was going to kill both of them. And then she ends like, the story by like, and Peter's always held it against me. It's like, uh, yeah, you would. Yeah, like, you'd what? Also get terrified. Yeah, it's like, what the fuck? Yeah, I, so when we were watching it this time, I had a moment where I was just like, maybe she was actually just trying to kill her children, and she wasn't sleepwalking because she hasn't sleep. She's that's the only story of a sleepwalking, isn't it? And it was like, maybe she was actually just trying to murder her children. But then I saw a theory, which is that her mother was, her sleepwalking was her subconsciously trying to stop Paymon being infused into a human by killing both of her children. Um, So... um... That's the end of that scene with Jane. And then we find... um, Dad comes in to find... um, Annie working in the studio again. This time she's working on a miniature of the, the, uh, the scene of the horrible accident, uh, complete with severed head, um, and body and street lamp and the car. And it's just like, and he's like, how do you think Peter will feel if he sees this? And she's just like, what? It's just like a neutral recreation of what happened. I, her, her, <laughs> this was at the time when I was beginning to start resenting her a little bit, and her, her like affront to him suggesting that it's inappropriate was so like blinkered and ridiculous. It's like, of you must be able to see that this might be a little bit dramatic for your son. <laughs> also, like, who else would want to... I guess, like, Crete weirdos want to see it, but, like... I would want to see it. Yeah, I suppose. Um, yeah, well, so include it in an art cup. A Christmas centrepiece <laughs> for the table. <laughs> Amazing. Um, he then is just like... Well, you could come down for dinner if you like or not. I don't give a damn at this point or something. Um, we then cut to dinner table. Dinner table. Um, and, uh, and everyone looks miserable. Um, Annie is literally just like poking at her food and scowling around the table. And, uh, Pete is trying to eat, but it's just really like awkward because like nobody else is eating. It looks really like, like like messy because it, I think eating does look kind of chaotic anyway but when you're the only person doing it at a table where it's just so tense it just emphasises how weird it looks it's like picking at the bits of meat and stuff um, and uh, so, so then he's just suddenly going to say it's really good dad and uh, and uh, so I goes that's uh, thanks buddy and uh, and, she, and she just goes oh Um, uh, I think the really weird thing about this whole scene actually is that uh, he wanted to call him Alex Peter Mm. is almost like playing the role of the adult in it um, oh, yeah. Like he he recognises the tension and then says something like very adult which is like thank you for the lovely meal sort of thing Yeah, yeah. and then later when uh, we'll get to the argument but after the argument the uh, the dad this used to happen in my family with arguments with me and my dad <laughs> my so the dad tells Peter to stop it not the mother 
And it's like, mm. he's a kid and he's being spoken to like shit by his mum. Mm. Tell her to stop. Yeah. Like he's being positioned as the adult there because yeah. the dad obviously recognises that he... And has, he is demented. And though. that he kind of... Um, he has the capacity to be the bigger person. Yeah, yeah. Um, so are we going to attempt to recreate the, the scene now? We are. So yeah, we'll go, we'll go from the scoff. So here I go. <laughs> you okay, mum? What? Is there something on your mind? Ugh. Is there something on your mind? Just looks like you might want to say something. Like what? Why would I want to say something so I can watch you roll your eyes at me? I've never rolled my eyes at you. Oh, sweetie, you don't have to. You get your point across. Okay, so say what you want to say then. I don't want to say anything. I've tried saying things. So try again. Release yourself. Release you, you mean? So fine. So release me. What do you want to say? Fucking say it. Don't you swear at me, you little shit. Don't you ever raise your voice at me. I am your mother, you understand. I've given you everything. All I ever do is worry and slave and defend you. And all I get back is that fucking face on your face. <sighs> so full of disdain and resentment and always so annoyed. Well, now your sister's dead, and I know you miss her, and I know it was an accident, and I know you're in pain, and I wish I could take it all away. I wish I could shield you from the knowledge of what you did, but your sister is dead. She's gone forever, and what a waste. If it could have maybe brought us together, something, if you could have just said, I'm sorry, or face up to what happened, maybe that we could do something with this, but you can't take responsibility for anything, so now I can't accept, and I can't forgive, because nobody admits what they've done. Uh, and see. Yeah. <laughs> yes. That was beautiful. Yes, yeah, very fun. <laughs> I don't know why I ever told. I was uh, perhaps miscast in that as I got an A in. Uh, no, I didn't. I got a B in. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think I, I got a, a C in uh, GCSE drama. Uh, so maybe we should have swapped. <laughs> no, that was beautifully done. Thank you, thank um, you. And also, perhaps one of the most iconic uh, speeches. Yeah, I think it's funny because I was looking it up. It's like it's it's like women's uh, speeches from films. I think they must use it for like practicing for rehearsals or like uh, trials for things trials for things what are they called trials, <laughs> trials. Uh, what was it called auditions um <laughs> trial um so yeah so anyway she sits back down after that my favourite line is uh that fucking face on your face yeah <laughs> I love that. that fucking face on your face <laughs> like it's such a nice detail because um like you wouldn't write a script to say that, but you would say that in the heat of a... Yeah. Face on your face. Um, so she, that, during that bit, she's like flung herself up from the table, basically. And then she just like pulls the chair back down and sits down again. Um, and Peace is just like silently staring at her. And um, and then he really like coyly starts going, what about you, mum? She didn't want to go to the party. Um, so well, why she was she there? Yeah, I'm sorry. Um, so at that point, Dad's like, "Okay, I'm breaking this up," um, and Annie just storms away from the table. Um, next, uh, we're cutting to Annie, and she's walking out of the art supply store in the day, um, and she notices Joan loading her trunk uh, with some stuff, and um, 
And, uh, <laughs> why have I written Undertone Joan? I think we said that at some point. Anyway, um, so, uh. Oh, <laughs> we did. We said that there was a something Undertone. Like, undertone Joan. <laughs> um, so, uh, so she, like, Annie chases her down and has a chat with her, and Joan seems, like, really, like, buoyant and over the moon, and it's just like, she's like, uh, I feel great. Something happened. I feel completely turned around. Um, and she says to Annie that she went to an open seance that was for cynics and skeptics. And, uh, the, and how like there was like a scientist there and even he was like shook by what, uh, what happened with the medium. And, uh, and at the end, like, uh, she approached, uh, Joan. <laughs> it was like that scene off, uh, What's that Netflix documentary about death? Oh, God. It's just like, it's me, Johnny! <laughs> <laughs> exactly like that. Um, so then Joan apparently approaches her at the end of the seance and uh, she comes back to the apartment and uh, has conjured uh, her grandson and she's sort of saying all this to Annie and Annie's kind of like pinned the car next to her, basically kind of backing away, being a bit like, oh, this all sounds a bit bonkers. Um, but Joan's so kind of like, kind of convincing and sort of like, kind of crazy that she kind of like ends up convincing Annie to come back to, to her apartment. Um, so back at the apartment, um, they've uh, obviously drawn the curtains and it's all pitch black and, uh, except for a candle. And, um, she tells her to put her hands on an upturned glasses on the table and they both do it. And, uh, she calls out for her grandson, Louis. Um, Annie at this point sort of flinches as she feels something sort of move past her or something in the air. And, um... So, uh, uh, now that we know the story, are we supposed to believe that there was a Louis or not? Yeah, nobody knows. Uh, who knows, yeah. Because obviously, like, I, yeah, I don't think so. I think it was basically a trick to basically get her to, uh, conjure Paymon or, like, um, anyway. So, um, so, yeah, so she says, um... So, the, so, yeah, the glass then suddenly moves across the table. Annie's, like, freaking out. And she literally looks under the table in this really kind of, like, funny way. Which, which is, is a nice detail because yeah, it comes so, around later. Yeah, and it's kind of like a sort of mildly comedic moment. She, the way she looks under the table, like, what? Um Anyway, so then um the glass is, like, moving around the table. Um, and then she gets the chalkboard out. And uh, and she says, like, like, write for me, write for me. And uh, it writes, uh, I love you, Granny, but in, like, L-U-B. And she's like, I love you too, Louis. And uh, Annie, at this point, is, like, completely freaking out and uh, gets up and says she has to leave immediately and is, like, rushing out the door. Um, as she does, uh, Joan uh, hands her the candle and a uh, piece of paper and says, like, this is everything you need if you... If you want to do it at home, and you know, this is probably a bit full on. I was scared the first time it happened. Um, but if you do do it, you have to make sure that all of your family are in the house when you perform the ritual. Um, and uh, you should try it definitely. Um, so the reason that she needs all the family to be there is to transfer Paymon from Charlie to him, is it? Or to, yeah, because Paymon's transferred to the mother. Mm. Who knows? I don't, yeah, I'm not sure exactly, but it also made me think that actually at this point the whole family is in the house as well because Granny's in the attic. Um, but they don't know that. Um, anyway, so, um, so yeah, so then, um, she's driving home, like all sort of like freaked out and she hears, uh, one of, uh, Charlie's notorious clucking noises in the car. Oh, I just get And, uh, she, she breaks suddenly in the car. Um, 
that night uh, she's in bed and she looks over and she notices that there's like huge black ants all like over her pillow and she looks down oh, this whole scene's really yeah and uh, she looks down and uh, she sees them all coming through the window they're like huge ants they're like disgusting and um she then gets up and she follows a whole trail of them and they're all going towards peter's room um she goes into peter's room and they're literally all over his bed and his face is like completely covered in them it's like disgusting um and she pulls this kind of really amazing horrific face so she's just like <laughs> um suddenly it's like the whole thing is the spell is broken of it and he's sat up in bed and she's like asked if she's okay um and says that she's been sleepwalking again and um and uh He's, he mentions something about hearing Charlie, and uh, she says, is Charlie here? Um, and um, so at first when he wakes up, he say, he's like, is that Charlie? Or Charlie? Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, they're having a conversation, and suddenly she just sort of blurts out like something like, I never wanted to be your mother. And she grabs her mouth, like she spat it out, like she didn't mean to say it. Um, and then she talks about how she tried to miscarriage and she tried everything, um, but it ended up not working. But how she's very grateful that he didn't work and that she loves him. And he's just like, oh, what the fuck? Um, and then all of a sudden they're both like drenched um, uh, in what we assume is probably the pain thinner. And uh, then they set on fire and she wakes up in bed like suddenly and we realize it was a dream. Um, yeah. Um, it then uh, cuts to um, her, like, I think in the ensuite of the bedroom, sort of like, sound, you can hear her sort of doing some sort of chanting or ritual, and it must be the, the words from the book, because um, you hear her say, Paymon. Um, she then uh, it cuts to her, like, sort of almost like jumping on Peter's bed to wake him up. And like apologizing to him and say that she loves him very much and, and she's really sorry and she wants to make everything up to him and she needs to show him something and they need to do something together. Um, then she wakes dad up and she's like, we need to try something, we need to try something. And she seems kind of like manic basically. And they're both like really confused. Like, and the dad's just like, Oh my God, what the hell's going on? And, um, so it drags him downstairs. Um, and she says, I tried this 20 minutes ago and it worked and I need to show you. Um, and, um, and dad just goes, uh, Peter, go to bed. And, um, and then she's like, no, please be open to this. Um, and she explains that, like, yeah, they need to link hands and then, uh. The father is really, like, weak willed because he just goes along with everything for quite a long time. Yeah. Like, okay, this is enough. <laughs> um, and, uh, and Pete sort of says that he's willing to go along with it, basically. And, um, and so they all link hands and then, like, they ask, she asks if Charlie's there. Um, and there's like a creak in the corner of the room. And then it says, if you're here, move the glass. Um, and then, uh, Peter goes like, like looks around, like the way that Annie did in the, like, seance. And it's just like, what the hell? Didn't you feel that? It felt like the air was flexing. Which I thought was kind of an interesting sort of turn of phrase. Um, the glass then slides and, uh, the candle, um, I think it lights at this point. I don't, I don't know if it was lit originally. Anyway, um, so the dad says, like, oh, you're scaring him. Um, and, uh, and then a huge flame, like, like comes out of the, the candle. Um, at this point, um, oh yeah, and then something smashes in the room. You're not sure what it is. Mm-hmm. At this point, the dad then looks under the table the same way that she did at the seance. Um, 
And uh, so at this point, um, like Annie starts making really weird, scary, sort of gurgling noises. Um, and then her voice becomes like a little girl. And she's like, Mum, what's happening? Mum! And um, it all starts getting a bit kind of chaotic. Like, Peter's like, sobbing and crying. He also um, he's got such a good cry. <laughs> um, it's like a kind of like a bereft sob. And yeah, it's quite uh, childish as well. Yeah, and um and she's like, I don't like this and then like mum's carrying on, it's like, Why are you scared of me? Mum, mum, why are you scared of me? Um and dad ends up throwing loads of water over the mum and she wakes up and she's like, What happened? Um, which, which is interesting, him saying, why are you scared of me? Because he's very obviously scared of her for good reason. Oh, no, no, no. She's, Annie <laughs> says it. Why are you scared of me? No, he says it to her. Oh. He says to his mum, why are you scared of me? Oh. And I think this is ties into that theory that the mother subconsciously knows uh, what's happening. And that's why she's always wanted to, like, uh, she wanted to miscarry. She tried to kill him. Yeah. Because she knows that he has the potential to be this, like, vessel. So, yeah, so Peter then sort of breaks down and sobs into the dad's shoulder. Um, and that end scene. Um, <laughs> uh, next day, Peter's in class and he sees the weird lights, um, reflecting around the room. And, um, and he's, like, following them around and he looks to see if anyone else has noticed them and nobody has. Um, uh, and at this point, he then looks over to a sort of a glass cabinet that's to his right or left. I can't remember. <laughs> um, and um, he sees his own face reflected back with him, with instead of his, well, it's his face, but it's this like weird, like chilling, kind of like fake smile face that's looking back at him. Um, <clears throat> it then cuts. I mean, I think the first time we saw that, that was one of the bits that I found scariest. I hate that bit. Um, I mean, like, but I, on repeat watches, it's not as extreme as I remember it being. Yeah, I still. Like hate it, but I, 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 that was one of my worst, scariest bits in the film the first time round. Um, we then have Annie at home, and uh, she gets a call from Dad, and you hear him saying that he has to go and collect Peter because uh, he's in hysterics at school, thinking that there's a demon stalking him, and uh, says stuff like, "I need to think of him first and sort of implying that she's sort of like fucking him up, essentially. Um, yeah. <laughs> Um, she then gets a voicemail that she, well, she lets go to voicemail this, like, call from the gallery chasing, and it's, like, starts with a whole bit of being, like, so sorry about your family, we're all thinking about you, um, but Ari, the, uh, show, just wondering where we're at with that, should we push it back? Um, and, uh, she, she's working on, like, a really intricate scene that, I, I might be the funeral, I'm not sure, and she ends up just, like, hating it and just smashing the whole lot um the so dad gets home um and with peter from school and he first first thing he says is like what's that smell and because obviously we can't smell it we don't know what the smell I, is smell of vision well i i thought it was something to do with like her smashing the studio up and like it's like sort of paint thinner or something when i first watched like was watching it but i'm assuming at this point it's actually the smell of dead grandma yeah. um so he goes upstairs and finds annie kind of like slumped in the middle of the floor with all of the work trashed um and he's like what's happened and she's like i just don't feel like looking at it anymore um 
that night she hears a pencil scratching coming from uh, Charlie's room and uh, she goes into the room and finds like her notebook her sketchbook and it's being drawn in over and over with the pages flipping over and like you don't see a pencil weirdly but you do see the drawings like appearing um uh Peter wakes up in the night as well and uh, he ends up seeing Charlie in the corner of the room um and as he's looking at her, <laughs> her head falls off um and um and it becomes a ball on the floor um and then suddenly hands come from behind the bed and like grab at him and try and like pull on his head um and uh then it cuts to, like Annie's in the room suddenly and uh, he's like she's like, what's happening? What's happening? And it's like, you were trying to pull my head off. And it's like, I wasn't. Um, and, uh, she says she came in because she thought he was having a nightmare. Yeah. And, um, she says like to him, like, um, don't tell your father about this, but yeah, I'm the only person that can stop all of this. Um, and I think she sort of thinks that, yeah, there's something to do with Charlie's book essentially. And there's the ritual she's done. Yeah. Because um, the, uh, Joan had said that to do the ritual, you need to have like a personal an object and the, hers was the chalkboard. Yeah. So yes, the object are. So, um, so she ends up, uh, putting Charlie's book into a fire in the living room. And as it's burning, suddenly a flame creeps up her arm of the sleeve of her lovely cardigan. Um, she, uh, as, as it's happening, she realizes that she's sort of connected to the book in some way. So she pulls it out and stomps on it. Um, next day, uh, Annie is uh, doing great hair acting. It's my favorite type in horror when you see a woman unhinged and suddenly her hair becomes huge. Um, and she's like storming. That's like me every day. <laughs> um, and, um, she's sort of like, sort of wildly walking towards Joan's apartment. Um, she gets there and she knocks on the door and uh, nobody's there, but we get to sne- have a sneak peek inside. <laughs> and uh, everything's covered in sort of white sheets and there's candles everywhere. Um, and there's a big, like, sort of, like, altar with a load of Charlie's toys on it um, and uh, and a big symbol of Paymon on the wall. And the he- pigeon's head. Oh, yeah, Pidgey. Um, and... Uh, yeah, we then cut to uh, school and Peter's outside. Um, I guess they're eating lunch. I don't know what he's doing, but um, but he hears like a woman screaming weirdly close. Even though when he looks oh, up, yeah. she's far away and she's across the road, and it's Joan. Um, and she's screaming like, "Peter, I expel you!" And then just some like weird like magic like Latin words or something, and like Peter, get out. Um, and we can assume that what she's doing is trying to like get him out of the body so that Paymon can get in essentially. Um, I mind so um yeah so Annie's now at home and she's going back through the boxes and she finds um a, like a book that sort of details a lot of stuff about a uh, paymon and um and it sort of goes into detail about what kind of what he can offer and like rituals and there's pictures of him and uh, there's like an underlying bit um that essentially says uh, King Paymon uh, likes man bod. Well, no, it basically says that, um, <laughs> that he prefers a male host. Um, and, um, and uh, yeah, she then finds a photo album she flicks through and it's all the cults, basically. And she sees Joan in the pictures and there's like this amazing like photo of uh, the grandma like being showered in coins wearing like this kind of like white robe. Mm. 
that I very much want to recreate someday. Maybe chocolate coins. Oh, That'd nice. Fun, yeah. um, <laughs> so um, at school, uh, Peter's now indoors and he sees the weird lights again, uh, strobing sort of down the corridor. Um, and uh, yeah, so then we cut, it's all at this point, everything's sort of cutting between scenes. So we then get, we're cutting to dad and he's, he gets the email uh, and it's talking about the desecration and it has photos of the dug up grave and it's quite kind of like a tidy job of it being dug up and it sort of talks about it like it's quite a lovely job actually um and uh talking about it being for insurance purposes that he needed this like photography um so uh also now um annie is uh going into the attic uh for some reason i get that we assume to find more uh grandma's stuff um, and as she opens the attic door, a load of like buzzy flies come out, and it's like she's like she's like oof, pooey. Um, <laughs> that's, disgusting. that's disgusting. That was funny, yes. Um, and uh, it's obviously some kind of stinky stench. Um, and uh, she goes upstairs, and she ends up like shining a torch around, and she goes and she shines into the, sh- the corner, and uh, she sees uh, one candle and like this kind of black like bloated corpse um in a, a white nightgown uh like uh, on the floor and um she sort of assumes it's her mum but she's not sure um and the symbol of paymon is on the wall um back now to peter's in class and he hears uh the clucking uh from all around him and he's like looking around um his hand then jolts up into the air in this kind of like weird contorted sort of position um and the teacher's like Yes, Peter, but everything's like quite muffled, like he's not really there. Um, and he kind of looks like he's having a stroke almost. It's like his face goes all kind of like swollen on one yeah, side. It's, and it's also like, like one of his eyes is like wider open and like yeah. Um, and like, yeah, it's as if he's had like, well, as you say, a stroke, a stroke for example. But he also, um, I don't know if this is like problematic to say, but I know. Charlie was made up to look more unusual. Yeah. He, he almost resembles her a little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah, he looks very odd, basically. Um, and uh, he then, um, while all the class like turned around looking at him, he then slams his uh, face like violently into the desk, and it's like blood everywhere. And doing that sort of wakes him up from wherever he's... kind of instantly slaps... slaps. <laughs> Uh, snaps out of it and kind of is like yeah horrified. he like flings his whole body basically backwards away from the desk and like falling like flying away from it um, and uh, he actually cut back to like the whole class and one of them's filming on their camera phone I thought that was kind of funny detail yeah I also wonder if maybe he shouldn't have returned to school so soon after that yeah I, mean, I think there's a lot of like missing detail in the film like for example where were the police? Like, was there an investigation into any of this? Um, like, did they report it? Um, where was the family counselling? Um, is it just going along with, like, mum sleepwalking and trying to set fire to everyone? And just being like, oh, well, that's, that's family Cla- life. Classic mum. <laughs> um, yeah, there's a lot of kind <laughs> of... Uh, don't mind, Annie, that's just kind of a thing. <laughs> she's quirky like that. Um... So, uh, so dad gets a call about Peter obviously having his funny turn at school and picks him up. Um, and while, like, Peter's like completely passed out, like knocked out in the back seat. And, uh, they put, he pulls up to uh, traffic lights and at this point the dad just like bursts into tears. Um, 
Uh, as the driver got the drive, Annie like flies out oh of the house. God. I want to strangle at this point. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's like, just let them pull up, let them pull in, they're going to stop any moment now. And then she sees um, Peter's, oh my god, what's happened to him? Oh my god. Um, and she is sort of all over Dad, kind of like being like, you need to check in the attic, check if the, if the body is real. I don't know if it's real or if it's there or if I'm seeing things. Um, and, uh, he he goes upstairs and it's just like I think he just goes like oh my god um, and uh, and he asks why she hasn't called the police and she's like well the police can't help us now only I can stop this um, and she tries showing uh, the dad the photo album with uh, the payment symbols and talks about the ritual and the curse and it's all very kind of high speed essentially in this way that he's quite kind of blankly sort of being barked at essentially and just obviously not believing anything she's saying and uh, she's just like blah 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 and the rituals and payment and blah 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 blah, blah. <laughs> um, and, um, and she begs him to uh, throw the book in the fire even though she thinks that she's going to be set on fire because she thinks it's the only solution essentially that she'll sacrifice herself to save the family essentially um and so she gives him the book and he's like looking really like broken and kind of just confused and just like, what the fuck? And, uh, and he's just, he starts walking towards the fireplace and he's just like, I'm not going to do this with you. You're sick. I'm, I'm going to call the police. Um, at which point she snatches the book out of his hand and throws it in the fire and he immediately combusts into flames. <laughs> yeah. <it's a> <laughs> It's also a really cool visual. He also doesn't really react, which I think is really chilling. He just stands there. Yeah. Um, the like he, drop and roll. Yeah. What he's supposed to do. Um. um yeah, like that visual, <laughs> the like kind of wide shot of him stood there and her, yeah, her like, doing her, her classic amazing horror face. Yeah. Um, but also, I think during that bit, her horror face sort of like sort of she breaks and she suddenly just becomes like. Yeah, sort of like dead behind the eyes. And it sort of suggests at this point that she's now being possessed by Paymon, but like, I can't really follow how and when Paymon's inside of people, but anyway, um, it sort of explains why she's doing what she does next. So, um, Peter, who I forgot to say has been helped into bed, and so he's just woken up when he got home, and um, he sees uh, lights in the treehouse, and then also a big light comes on, like outside. Um, and you, for a while you don't notice it, but then you look up and you see that mum is in the corner of the room, kind of like a spider or something, just kind of like, just sort of like sprawled yeah. into the corner of the it's room. It's like the front cover of The Last Exorcism, the way she's oh, like, yeah. the, um... Um, and uh, he goes to look, I don't know, he's just still on the bed. And um, he looks around over one shoulder, but as he's looking around that way, mum flies off. In the other direction. It's like she's swimming through the air. Yeah. Yeah, I love that as well. This is some of the things that people found ridiculous, is the way that the swimming is. I think it's it's amazing as well. Um, so, uh, he's, he leaves her, his room and the whole house is like dark and he hears the flies, um, and he's like calling for mum and dad and, um, and the house is completely dark. Um, he hears, uh, strange noises and goes around, um, and sort of slowly comes down the stairs. Um, weirdly actually there's a little detail with a little house replica has the lights all on at the bottom of the stairs. Um. But anyway, he finds the house all dark. Um, Isn't that all smashed up? No, it's like a separate one that's in the lobby. That um, anyway. Um, so yeah, um, 
he comes into the living room and finds a crispy dad um, <laughs> lying on the floor. Automatic um, crispy dad. <laughs> <laughs> um, and again, mum is hiding up in the rafters, just like out of sight in the shadows in the, in the top of the ceiling. Um, he he starts to cry and then suddenly hears a noise and stops. Um, he turns around and he sees uh, a nude dude. Um, I think it's the same uh, Raoul note. It is, yes. It's the, I was going to say Nazi. Um, <laughs> it does have that look. Of yeah, that sort of yeah, but, like, yeah, that guy is just completely naked, stood in the sort of shadowy doorway. And, um, it's strange uh, to say, he does look like a Nazi. <laughs> <That> <laughs> Nazi peen. Um, so, um, and he's smiling still in the doorway. Um, like, while he's concentrating on that, you suddenly, out of the mum, <laughs> the mum darts running out of the corner of the room I and chases him into the attic. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah, that bit was iconic. It's like, she's just, and, um, and it's it's funny, he locks the attic door and um, she's like banging and you think it's just like banging with fists and it's, it's funny because he's saying mummy at this point, he's like mummy, mummy, yeah. mummy, please. And um, you, it cuts down and you see that she's actually just like using her head like in this kind of crazy way, like bashing it yeah, over and over like and over. she's crawling on the ceiling just bashing her head. Yeah, so yeah. Um, he looks around the attic and there's obviously millions of flies and candles everywhere. And um, he looks over to where the body of Granny used to be. And now there's just like an outline of a body. And there's his photo is just on the floor there um, with its eyes scratched out. Um, he then, um, he, he's, he then has like a, a, he, oh, sorry. Yeah, no, he then he's like, I've got to wake up. I'm dreaming. This is a dream. Um, and uh, suddenly like a blood like drops on him and he looks up and, um, and it's, oh, this bit, oh, it's, it's, all of this bit is amazing. Anyway, so mum is floating again in the rafters, but this time she looks like she's sort of like, sort of not stood, but just like she's upright essentially. And she's like using a piano wire to saw off her own head in this kind of really kind of, at first it's quite kind of like jerky kind of yeah. like weird way. And then all are just speeding up and speeding up and speeding up. And you and just her see face her like, is completely like, uh, emotionless. Yeah. Like, um, yeah, it's a really kind of amazing, kind of horrifying visual. Um, uh, and he then looks down and looks into the corner and there's like three old nudies, um, <laughs> like stood and one of them's like an old woman just waving, like smiling. And this is the thing that. She doesn't wave, does yeah, she? she does. Does she? Yeah, she's like, Kiwi. Oh, she's my favorite character. Um, <laughs> and, um, at this point, the shock of them, not the mom story at all, uh, encourages him to throw himself out the window. And so he smashes through the glass and ends on the, on the ground. Um, at this point, we then see the, the sort of weird light thing that represents Paimon just kind of floating around him, settling on his back, and it looks like kind of it's absorbed into him. Um, he wakes up um, in the flower bed um, to see Mumsy, well, Mumsy's bald, no head, um, sort of climbing through the air, like swimming in that same way, sort of up into the treehouse. Um, he gets up kind of like, he's quite kind of blank at this point, like, you can't, like, it's funny because like, I was sort of reading it the first time around that he'd just seen too much and he was just broken. He was just going along with it at this point. But obviously it's kind of also that he's possessed. Like, yeah, well, I just didn't pay him on go into him as soon as... Yeah, um, I think so. Out the 
Yeah, so then, um, so he's wandering towards the treehouse, and in the in the forest, it's all lined with load more nudies, just like smiling. Um, and uh, he climbs up into the uh, into the treehouse, and there's uh, load more nudies. Some actually wearing a sh- like uh, like shawls and robes, yes. all white. Yeah, right. it was funny actually because I wondered whether that was a thing because Joan refused to be naked, mm-hmm. and so everyone else had to wear robes, which I, in my head was an iconic power move. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, like, you, you need me in this film. <laughs> I'm, I'm getting these wabs. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, absolutely not. Um, he looks over and he um, he sees the uh, the body of his mum and his gran are like at the front. And there's like a statue that's like one of those wooden kind of like drawing sculptures that you get. Oh. Um, and the head is Charlie's head with a crown on it. And there's a bird cage. Um, and uh, there's a picture of uh, Granny on the wall uh, smiling. And it's like got the, 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 the like, a little caption on it says, Queen Lee. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so then um, Joan, like, he is like a jingling, um, which I guess is like the arrival of Paymon or something. I don't Apparently- know. Ah, I saw this. It's something like the name Paymon means like a little tingle. This is what I told you. <laughs> well, you told me half the story. Oh, okay. Um, but then I watched Untucked and got the full story. <laughs> God, imagine we had an Untucked for this. We don't need it. <laughs> I don't need to Oh. <laughs> um, so, um... So yeah, Jane gets up and uh, puts a crown onto his head, and uh, weirdly, the bo- mum and grand's body is then flip around like towards him at this point, and um, and Jane says, "Hey, hey," uh, like trying to be like this calming tone, quite sweet. It's like you're Paimon, one of the eight kings of hell, and actually, this is a strange wrong thing because they're actually Six. nine. Oh, yeah. Um, and um and she says that we corrected your first female body um and uh, she does a whole speech uh, essentially saying stuff like give us your knowledge and wealth and good familiars and um and we'll you know we basically devote our lives to you and all this stuff um and uh she says hail paymon and then all the all the nudies say hail paymon hail paymon and then it um pans out and it, the it, the treehouse is now kind of like a dollhouse essentially mm-hmm. cut into with one of the walls removed and you just see the whole scene um and uh then that is the end of the movie. Hi there. Oh, we're back. We're back. <laughs> it's time for representation. Uh, let's start with representation of women. It's a lot of women. That's an awful lot of women. That's a wow, wow, wow. Um, uh... <laughs> I don't know what to say. Um, the, are they strong? I mean, they're all flawed, essentially, aren't they? Well, like, everyone is flawed in this. Yeah. And I think uh, it depends how you read it, really, because it's such... Like, it's not a film that... It leaves you with questions in the right way, in that it's just like, hmm, there are lots of ways of reading this, rather than like, I don't know what happened, which is frustrating. Yeah, yeah. But it's a good way. And... If you read it, the, her actions were always subconsciously to prevent this from happening. Mm. Because she says, uh, 
Because I, there's a bit when she's saying that in her dream, it's in a dream where she says that she wanted to have a miscarriage. Yeah, yeah. And then she's like, I wasn't trying to hurt you, I was trying to protect you. Yeah. That suggests that there was an element of her kind of subconsciously, or maybe even consciously knowing what was happening. Yeah. And if you read it that way, then she is being very selfless. She offers to burn the book. She to does. Save the family. Yeah. Um, she... However, <laughs> you could also read it that she's actually a really awful abusive mother. Um, it does seem that way. And it, it sort of is implied that it's uh, from her childhood and her upbringing and her relationship with her mother that she's then become quite kind of damaged and then she feels quite kind of like persecuted from everyone. It's really refreshing to watch a horror film about motherhood. I know, <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, I just... Um, it is interesting though because actually um, she obviously is like an established artist if we're to sort of understand what it's implied. Um, and it sort of seems like the dad doesn't have a job. So maybe she's sort of the one that is like the breadwinner and it's sort of like... In which case, she's done very well for herself, given the sort of beautiful house they live in. And also, I guess if we read it through a very, like, stereotypical, sort of old-fashioned nuclear family way, Mm. he makes the dinner. (laughs) He picks the kids up from school when they need it. Like, it's quite a sort of... uh, I mean, either way, it's a dysfunctional family. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, And also the... I guess the one thing that... There's this idea, I, I guess it could be read through the lens of the mother as hysterical mm. and the father as the kind of reasoned, rational one. Yeah. Um, but then. She's not wrong, though. That's, well, when she figures it all out, that's when she's at her most, in best commas, hysterical. But that's like, because she's figured it all out and put it together, essentially. Mm. It's sort of strange that she spent her whole life not being able to figure this out, though, and it's only coming together now. Given it looks like it was a, well, she talks about her mum being quite secretive, I guess, but it just seems, seems quite strange. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a bit, there's a bit in one of the um, classes, actually, one of Peter's classes, where uh, the teacher is talking about like, I think it's a Greek myth or something, and uh, and the girl answers saying like, it's kind of like stupid that even though the hero of the this like is given so many warnings and so many signs he then continues i don't know um which what they're talking about but it's kind of i think it's sort of meant to sort of parallel the the, the film it's meant to be like there were so many warning signs and you didn't notice them and you've just gone along with it all and it's like now you've got your comeuppance essentially yeah i think it's icarus who's the one that makes wings to fly fly too close to the sun um but yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's, yeah, it's really confusing, and it's just like, I actually like she's quite sweet with Charlie. Like, there's that scene after the funeral; she just has that moment with the bed. But she's horrible to Peter, like consistently. Um, yeah, yeah, she's a very complicated character, which I think is good representation. Yes, um, that's true. And her, her like preoccupations are not with a man. Yeah, that's true. It's with a family. Yeah. And... A demon. And a demon. And also (laughs) kind of wrestling with her own guilt, which she doesn't do a very good job of. No, she's terrible at her own guilt. But also she kind of diagnoses her own problem when she says that no one in this family can take responsibility for anything, or whatever it is she says. Yeah, yeah. Because ultimately that's kind of her. Yeah, yeah. And like, of course his son... 
is a bit wary of you. <laughs> you terrifying woman. Yeah, I think I think that the, the, the sort of interesting and complex like women. So I think it is that's good. Yeah, and also the the like kind of cult of Paymon is very woman led. Yeah, with Joan and the grandmother. That's true. Um, and yeah, maybe just a shame that Paymon's a man. <laughs> yeah, an androgynous man, but still <laughs> <Yes>. a man. <laughs> uh, a beautiful face. <laughs> People of colour, not really. It's no, it's very white. Um, yeah. I, I mean, you, I was thinking you kind of put that down to the fact that the family are white and it's based around the family. But you actually do have the whole of the kind of like the grief counselling group and the cults. Like, uh, we did notice um, a few brown faces at the... At yeah. the but, it, but there's no meaningful representation. No. Which um, yeah. um, is a shame. Yeah... In terms of queerness, I guess only if you read it through yeah, the, the trans lens, I think. Which I think is a valid reading. Mm. And especially if you know that Paymon himself is quite an androge yeah. figure. Yeah, yeah. Um, but otherwise, no. Otherwise, no. And then, I don't know if you were able to speak to this, because I don't know anything about this, but in terms of disability... I think this is a tricky one because it's not really explicit that Charlie has a disability in the film. Um, in real life, she does, which which affects the shape of her face. Um, but it's not talked about or talked to in the film, so I don't know about whether it's representation. It's also kind of obviously that... I mean, it is representation. It's not representation well, yeah, yeah, in yeah, terms yeah, yeah, of the yeah. story or the plot, but in terms of, like, there being a visibly disabled person on the screen. Yeah. Um, but I suppose the what I mean is that being, like, it's not positive because necessarily because she's sort of given this kind of weird sort of personality, this kind of gawkish kind of strangeness. Yeah, and also she's certainly from the... She's meant to be a little bit scary as well, isn't she? Yeah. Um, which... We've spoken about being an issue, obviously. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I, I wonder whether whether she whether they were just looking for a girl to play the part and she auditioned and she was good, so she got the part. That would or, be iconic, actually. Or if they were looking for a character that looked a certain way or had a... I mean, I, I feel like it was probably the former. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I mean, she was... Yeah, I have no idea. It would be interesting to know a bit more about that. Yeah, because the the other thing, I'm thinking about the, uh, and I I don't know uh, the name of the disability that he has, but you know the guy from uh, Stranger Things uh, with the curly hair? Is it one of the kids? Yeah. Oh. Um, He has a disability, and it's to do with, uh, it's got something to do with, uh, there's something physical about it, I, I can't remember any sure, details, sure, sure. but it also uh, it also means he 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 won't grow beyond a certain size. Um, and basically, he, the reason I bring this up is because he was cast because he was a brilliant actor, and then they wrote his disability into the series, yeah, rather than it being like, oh, we're looking for a disabled actor. So yeah, um, and actually, like. It doesn't, because, it, yeah, it doesn't, like I say, say that she explicitly she's disabled um, in the film. There's a sort of mild implication that she's a bit emotionally stunted, but that's not a disability. Um, and um, 
And so in, in that much, it must mean that they didn't need it to be a person who's disabled. It might be that she was just the right fit for the, the part. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. It's, yeah, it's... I, th- I think, if anything, maybe the thing that about her physically that made her ideal for the role is that she passes for 13, but she's got a very childlike look about her. And especially the way they dress her as well, obviously. But Yeah, the, yeah. Um, and she is supposed to seem young for her age, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, because she's being kind of coddled by the grandmother and doesn't hasn't kind of socially integrated with others her age and stuff. Yeah, and I, I, love, I love for her that she went on to do like loads of amazing like photo shoots for like, like fashion magazines and she's got like her own kind of like amazing like social media presence now that she owns and it's kind of like given her a platform um, that, yeah, she might not have had given the movies. So... Possibly, it's a, it is overall a good thing. Uh, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it is. It is a bit. It's just it feels tricky because obviously she is cast as a bit of a monster, and she is on the poster looking a bit strange. And I mean, I th- yeah, I, I I wonder how much of my perception of how much her kind of how she looks is uh, is linked to the horror of the film is because of how the film was marketed. I think yeah, because in the film. Like, she stands out because of her appearance, but also the trailer focused on her and yeah, made yeah. it seem like she was the source of the horror. Because the thing I remember from seeing it was that noise that she makes yeah. being, like, the kind of the scary bit. Um, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, another tricky one. Yeah, tricky. But tricky, tricky, I think tricky, mostly tricky. Very Yes. It's time for the awards. The awards. The awards. Scrap. Store store the table. (laughs) The face on your face. (laughs) Um, Who was your favorite? It's the awards, by the way. Who was your (laughs) favorite character? Um, My favorite character was the pigeon head. (laughs) (laughs) Mine was also a head, but it was a head of a miniature of Charlie. (laughs) Oh yeah, good one. Thank you. Spookiest bit. Oh, I find this really tricky. I think this it's scattered with loads of incredible bits, and each time I watch it, there's different ones. I think I think I'll stick to my original one when I, from when I first watched it, which is like him looking in the mirror, like uh, well, the reflection of his own face, sort of smiling back at him. That chilled me. The thing that really stuck with me after this film, almost more than the film itself, was how much it stuck with you. Because mm. normally you're not the scaredy one, I'm the scaredy one. Yeah, the, the, this is a rare case of a horror movie that actually scares me. Um, it doesn't anymore now, I've seen it, like I think I've seen it like maybe four or five times now. Um, but like the first time I watched it, I was like traumatised for like two weeks. <laughs> like, and I think, I think it's because of... The sort of supernatural element and the kind of like bit it being tied specifically to real um, sort of texts and sort of demonic stuff that I'm familiar with, so it kind of felt a bit more close to home in a way. Um, that sounds ridiculous, but it's true. <laughs> so, um, but um, but yeah, so it just felt a bit more grounded in like what I perceived to be reality, and so it kind of haunted me a bit more than most things, which are kind of like usually a, a sort of a strange take on what like Satanism is, or what a strange take on what demonology is. Do you know what I mean? Like it's not. But also, the, yes, I understand. But also, he did take some liberties with this story because the beheading thing doesn't have anything linked to the. Oh uh, yeah, the yeah, yeah. Paying on, but, um, yeah. But yeah, I I found it uh, 
very scary, especially the second time round when I was awake for the whole thing. <laughs> but, um, I think the scariest bit is, and well, it's a different kind of scary. It's the, the the chillingness of the aftermath of the death. Yeah, yeah. Is is what stuck with me the most, I think. Um, but also like the strangeness of her swimming in the background. Like it's these little things. Like so, like mm. the way that she is kind of all contorted up in the corner of the roof. We've seen that before. Yeah, That's yeah, become yeah, a bit yeah. of a trope. Not to say it shouldn't be used. But the swimming bit is... Re- and I think that's why people find it silly. It's yeah. because that strangeness is what makes it so scary. Well, that's what I mean. I think. I think that strangeness... Like, the strangeness of it makes it scarier. Like, like that bit where, like... It was quite jarring the first time watching when she she sort of swims, crawls into the treehouse. I was like, I couldn't... I, I couldn't place how I felt about it because I was like... This is so unusual. Like, you never see... You don't see this. It's like... And the way she's moving and the way that the body is so sort of smoothly floating is not in keeping with most horror films. She would be, like, galloping or something or, like, you know, yeah. kind of, like, crawling in some kind of horrendous way. Yes. Um, fast crawling. Yes. That's how people move around. Um, and I wonder, like, if that would have appeased them sort of more basic horror... I was going to say gays, but well, anyone. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah you're, you're right, actually. The... It might also be the slowness of it that, um, and the sort of like peacefulness of it that makes it strange. Yeah. I, I think, I think because the film gets progressively, I don't think darker, but it gets progressively weirder. Yeah, yeah. Works so that by the end, I can see anything and it won't surprise yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's been incremental. It doesn't feel like, oh, all of a sudden this is too weird for me to deal with. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's funny because, yeah, like I said, like after it came out, I just remember being really excited to talk to people at work on You Like Horror, and they were just like, I thought it was silly. I like laughed all the way through the end. I was like, what are you talking about? Like, they just thought it was, they just didn't get it. It didn't, it didn't jar them in any way. They just thought like it was all silly. And I, I don't understand why they thought that. Basically. I, I think also another reason why we were so taken by it, though, is because it's so similar to other films that we really like, mm. but it just does something completely new with it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, lots of spookiest bits. Um, funniest bit? Um, I think face on your face. Best <laughs> death. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think all the deaths are iconic in this. Like, you, it's hard to choose like a favorite, really, because they're all good. Like, well, I think you probably have to choose the, the telephone pole, but um, but the mum sawing her head off and like dad, dad going in flames. It's just like you know, all winners. Yeah, I I, I said Charlie just because the uh, I just think the whole aftermath is so beautiful yeah. like so I can't tell you how much I love that scene um, I realised that there was a worse death that the I pigeon didn't... no oh. the dog um, that you just see dead on the on the on the grass as he's going towards the treehouse and the dog is such a minor like point in the film and I don't really even understand why it was there yeah actually when we watched it I said is that dog been in this so far because <laughs> I just didn't remember seeing it yeah the dog is the worst character yeah <laughs> No pumpkins. <laughs> <for this detail. laughs> uh, queerest moment? Worst death, I said the pigeon. Okay. <laughs> uh, queerest moment? Uh, only the trans reading, I guess. It's not... Yeah, and the line that kind of stuck out to me the most was at the end when Jones says, uh, we've corrected your female body. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I thought corrected was a really interesting... Yeah, word, yeah. But... Um, uh, sexiest character? No, we know who it is, don't we? <laughs> oh, is it my boyfriend, Peter? It's the pigeon! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Peter is such a babe. Yeah, he such is. A, babe. a stunner. 
Um, so, how many pumpkins? How many pumpkins are we on right now? <laughs> um, yeah, it's. I mean, this is one of my favourite films. I was uh, intending to always review this film at some point, and so um, I think I'm... I might... I, I do... I want to give it a 5, but I, I can't. I think I'm going to go 4.5. Why not? 5? Oh, I don't know. Let's just go 5. Let's go all in. I don't know why you're so resistant just to fully enjoy something. Just in case another horror film comes along that just blows There's everything There's no up. limit to how many full marks you get. I'm giving this 5 points. Okay. okay. Um, I think it is a remarkably good film that manages to do... So a lot of recent brilliant films have kind of changed the genre in a way. They've been like kind of social commentary films. This one hasn't, I don't think, but I don't think it needs to because what it's done is it's captured all of the tropes I love in horror films and just made them something special and something new Mm. and tweaked them a bit and also set it amongst what is, if you removed all of the supernatural stuff, a really chilling family drama. Yeah, yeah. And it does it so beautifully. The script is brilliant. The acting is phenomenal. Um, the It's shocking. All of the deaths are gruesome and brilliant. Yeah. Um, it's understated. It's beautiful. Uh, oh, love it. I think it's great. Yeah. Five full-on, big, fat, unashamed pumpkins. Engorged pumpkins. Engorged pumpkins. <laughs> Throbbing pumpkin. Throbbing, heavy, pendulous, swinging pumpkins. (laughs) Beautiful. That's terrifying. Loud breath. Uh, so, a little an extra content warning for this one. This is uh, about uh, grief and death, and specifically about losing loved ones, so okay. it might not be for everyone. Um, it's also a bit briefer than usual, because this has been a real barn burner of a... Um, oh, barn episode. burner! <laughs> Fun! Thank you. Um, so, I was looking up uh, the idea of... Uh, Grief and the connection that has to ghosts, because sure. I think that's a lot of what the theme of grief is quite heavy in this film. It lays heavy um, on the film. Yes. Um, and I found an. <laughs> it's a little bit dry, so apologies. Oh, I love but that. I found an article in Scientific American <laughs> oh. by Vaughan Bell, uh, which has drawn on various studies, which says that grief hallucinations are a normal reaction to bereavement and very common. Oh, really? So this is people seeing or hearing people that they have loved and lost. Um, so, yeah, like basically like seeing ghosts of people that you've lost. Wow. Um, in once, it's especially prevalent in elderly widows and widowers. Um, and in one study, over 80% of elderly people who've lost their significant other um, experience hallucinations associated with their dead partner within one month of their death. Oh, scary. And almost a third of those spoke to them or heard their voice. Wow. Um, in a German study, uh, one example is a, of not an elderly person. It's a middle-aged woman whose daughter had died of a heroin overdose and she regularly saw her daughter, but her daughter was saying, Mama, Mama, it's so cold. Oh, I know, horrible. I know. Um, but again, this is quite cultural. So in lots of cultures, uh, not of like European origin, uh, they think rather differently. Uh, where the distinction between alive and dead and here and gone are less distinct. 
Um, and also where like the dead are celebrated more. So one of the examples is uh, in Japanese culture, um, they kind of celebrate their ancestors and those kind of passed from their family. And I expect in like, uh, like a lot of Spanish cultures or like Mexican cultures, it's the same sort of thing where it's less of a horror. Um, the, uh, so uh, Vaughan Bell says, our perception is so tuned to their presence, meaning the person who's died, that uh, when they are not there, to fill that gap, we unconsciously try to mould the world into what we have lived with for so long. So I wonder if it's a bit like, uh, you know, like phantom limb thing, uh, where you still feel like you've got the limb, even though it's no longer there. Yeah. If there's something that's a bit like that, where it's like you're so used to having that person there, which would explain yeah. why it happens more for like older people who've been with that person for a long for time. For a long time. Yeah. Um... I've also tried to mould uh, some presents into my gap. As well. <laughs> <laughs> you know what Good I mean? Getting some ghosty. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, according to an article in The Conversation, in a study of widowed people, um, uh, bereavement hallucinations only occur when the marriages are happy ones. Which is good. I yeah. Imagine being haunted by your abusive husband. Well, I was thinking about that one with a mum and the daughter saying it's so cold. Like, how does that help anyone? Yeah. Anyway. Um, <laughs> so another study reported that only 6% of those who experienced bereavement hallucinations found it an unpleasant experience. Uh, and I imagine that 6% included a woman called Julie, whose uh, dead mother appeared to her to call her a slag, a slut, and a whore. <laughs> and, less amusingly, encouraged her to overdose on pills. That's not very nice, um, no, is Apparently she did have a bad relationship with her mother in life, though. <clears throat> right. Um, so that's pretty much that. <laughs> I told you it would be brief. But an interesting side note that is semi-related. But there's research from a study in Rice University uh, from 2018 that suggests that spousally bereaved people who exhibit behaviours of elevated grief, um, suffer up to 17% higher levels of bodily inflammation um, and are at higher risk of cardiovascular problems and other health issues, including premature death. Which, is, oh. uh, which means that you can technically die of a broken heart. Oh. Anyway, that's the cheery note that we'll end on there. Oh, lovely. Yeah. It's so cold, Sean. Follow us on Instagram at uh, Bloody Mary's Podcast, all one word, and it's Mary's with a Z. Of course. Of course. And I'd like to say a big shout out, thanks to the uh, Pink Pound for the awesome theme tune. Um, and you can follow them at Pink Pound Sound on Instagram. And as always, if you've enjoyed Bloody Mary's, please like, subscribe, leave a review if you're able to. And tell all of your friends. If you have any. <laughs> <laughs>